Welcome back to the How to Become a Doctor podcast. I'm Kira, a fourth year medical student at the University of Birmingham. And I'm Lucy, a third year medical student at the University of Cambridge. On this podcast, we bring you all the information we wish we knew when applying to medicine through interviewing inspiring guests in the healthcare world, talking to organisations, including the King's Fund and the GMC, and sharing our experiences as mentors and mock interviewers. No contacts in the medical field? No problem, because in our specialty spotlight series, we are giving you guys a front row seat to interviews with doctors working in all of the different medical specialties. We find out what their day job is really like, their top tips for aspiring and current medical students, and what they would tell their younger self. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at how to become a doctor with doctor spelled DR to keep up to date with everything we're doing. So without further ado, let's jump straight into today's specialty spotlight. So welcome back to the podcast. And today we're recording a super special episode in celebration of International Women's Day. So when you're listening to it, it's International Women's Day. Do be sure to check out all of the incredible events and discussions that will be happening all over social media and all different platforms. And it's not just Lucy and I wobbling on all about women in surgery. We're joined by two much more qualified people to talk about this. So without further ado, I'd love to introduce... Miss Victoria Pegna and Miss Stella Vig. So would we be able to start off with maybe Stella, would you be able to introduce yourself to everyone listening? Yes, thank you so much. And thank you for inviting us. So I'm a consultant vascular and general surgeon based down at Croydon. And I'm also really proud to be a council member for the Royal College of Surgeons of England. I'm Vic Pena. And I'm also uh, on the Royal College of Surgeons of England Council as well. And just while we're on the subject of introductions, I wonder if, uh, do I need to refer to you as, as Miss Feek? Do I, uh, Stella? Or how do you feel about this kind of hierarchical thing? Vic, it's really interesting, isn't it? So I've still got colleagues who insist on being called by Mr or Miss. And I've never quite got it. So my, even my patients, not even, my patients, my trainees, people that work around me, I'm more than happy for them to call me Stella. There are there are still some patients who are normally slightly more older than younger who will say, oh, we can't possibly call you Stella. You're obviously Miss Fig. And I leave it up to the individual as to what they want to do. But Vic, I just think the hierarchy just is a potential for patient safety issues. People don't speak up because they think there's a barrier. And I'm all for removing barriers, as you know. As a girl in surgery, and people sometimes mistaking you for, uh, you know, a medical student, a cleaner or a nurse, and not that there's anything wrong with any of those things. But if you're not, and you're the surgeon, and the nurses say, introduce you to the patient, let's say in clinic and say, Oh, you've got Vic, oh, Vic's lovely. And then at the end of your 40 minute consultation about their cancer, they say, when am I going to see the surgeon? That's a bit annoying. Whereas in the room next door, Mr. So-and-so has been introduced by the nurses as Mr. Uh, and they've taken, they, they know automatically that they're surgeons. So um, I wonder if sometimes to patients, so not within your colleagues, not within the theatre staff, um, so patient mm -hmm. safety wise, I think it's definitely better to have first name terms. But I just wonder if you're, um, yeah, as a girl in this kind of uh, environment, sometimes it's helpful helpful to be referred to as the surgeon Miss Fig uh, mm -hmm. so that they know that you're the surgeon I don't know I'm at the start of my uh, surgical career so I haven't had it had it had it that bad yet but I, I definitely get mistaken you know as the nurse if I'm not introduced do you know that that's really interesting and that, and I found that the the way to combat that and have sort of a halfway house I do my best to remember my hello my name is badge which clearly says 
Hello, my name is Miss Stella Vig, Consultant Vascular and General Surgeon. And then I introduce myself so that they've got the visual because yeah. I genuinely think patients come in and they're so anxious that yeah. they forget the introduction. And yeah. so a visual reminder is quite helpful. So, but let's get on with the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> so let's jump in with our first, well, let's set the scene. What is the current situation like for women in surgery? So we're in an interesting environment. Generationally, people fought to become doctors as women. And that's not that long ago. And in 1991, when I qualified, I was aspiring to be a surgeon and I was born in North Wales and I looked round, and there literally were no women in surgery in Wales. There was one female who I didn't really want to emulate. Um, and when I applied for positions, there seemed to be very few females around. That's changing. So we know now that, you know, 50% of medical students are now female. We know that women are going into core surgery and applying and are fantastic candidates. I think the challenge to all of us is how do we encourage people who've entered surgery to stay in surgery and also excel and make a positive decision to take a, a senior leadership position. Now, some of that's generational, because of course, if you've got fewer women who are my age, there'll be fewer people at senior level. But, you know, Vic, at your level, I mean, I've got some amazing, amazing female registrars who've worked with me and actually have become consultant colleagues. But how are you finding it? Yeah, no, well, I think that's a very good point. And certainly about the time lag thing, which is a bit of a, I've got to be in my bonnet about at the moment. So I'm ST7 general surgery. So I've got ST8 to go before um, either consultant jobs or fellowships. And so there's 13% of female surgeons at the top in consultant um, um, positions. And say it takes between eight and 10 years to become a surgeon. Eight years ago, there were 50% of core trainees in that were female. And 10 years ago, they were about 50% and even longer than that. So the time lag doesn't make sense that there's only 13% at the top. So we're losing girls along the way somewhere. And I really feel upset about this. And it's not just because we take longer to get to the top because we might have families or we, we might be do research or whatever taking all of those factors out um, that there are just not as many people getting through to the end that are girls from core training. And it's a really big problem. And, and it's a huge loss to the surgical world because um, there's no reason it should not be 50, 50 at the top. And it's something that I think needs looking into actually I, I am, but it is changing. There's a sea of change. It's, it's, it's changing minute by the minute. And I feel really positive that it, it will change. And actually, certainly in my career lifetime, um, I won't retire until I see that it's 50% females at the top, I promise. <laughs> um, and I think we will get there. And I'm planning to retire in about eight years. So it needs to happen in okay. my time. We will Otherwise, make... I'm going to be 100, Vic, before we, it happens. Honestly, we're gonna, we will make it. There, there is just no room anymore for, mm. for, this, um, for, for it being just one type of person. So it's not even just the gender, is it? You know, it's actually also backgrounds as well, which we've talked about before, Stella, and um, we'll probably touch on a bit later but uh, and I've, as I've said many a times on 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 social media there is there's no place now for it to be all privately educated all male and all white it's just it's just you that is not what's going to give you the best 
surgical health service and we need to make it diverse and that's better for patients that's better for everyone mm. and it will happen and, and I'm and we're watching it in front of our eyes I actually feel really positive about it and I think that Covid may have sped these things up um, because um, of these Zoom conversations, of these Zoom meetings, of these webinars, of the fact that now it's not, now it's okay to be working from home, now it's okay to go less than full time, it's not just females that do that, it's actually, it's it's debunked a few myths and I think, um, I think, I think it's a, it's a, there's, there's many positive things that have come out of a really terrible um, pandemic and um, uh, and it will get better. And it won't be that long, I'm sure. So it's not necessarily in the hospitals that we're just talking about. So when you're at medical, so I, so I'm from a, 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 a single parent family, eldest of four children, on income support at one point, and um, your working class background or whatever. And I had a London accent, and I went to Imperial Medical School, and I can tell you, I was in the minority. Uh, having a job I had I worked 35 hours a week during medical school so I worked every single evening and everything single Saturday and Sunday I was the only one that did that um I was the only one that was like from a state school you know well, not the only one but I was I was definitely in the bottom end of, of the numbers of people that from their background and I think that's the difference if you're in the minority you're you're really aware that you're the minority whereas when you're not in the minority people are like oh my god I, I totally don't notice racism there's no racism where we are there's no sexism and then and you sort of think well yeah because you're you know you're not the minority you're not the, you're not the person yeah. on the other end so if we want to achieve 50 percent of surgeons that should be women actually being a woman is so diverse in itself i mean vic and i are completely different but there is so much diversity in just the term a woman a man you know, just even our colour. So if you look at me, I look Asian, I'm Indian, I'm proud to be Indian, but I was born in Bangor, North Wales. And again, Vic, like you, you know, my mum and dad were market traders. Um, they didn't do anything else but save their money to put us into private school because they felt that as Indian girls, we should only go to a female school. And that therefore meant it could only be a private school. And they almost bankrupt themselves by doing that. But you then go to university and there is this conversation that once you're in university, once you're in medicine, it equalizes. Well, it doesn't. Yeah. And I think my role, and I know, and I'm so passionate about this, my role as a training program director is we talk about equality. Um, and actually I talked about it earlier today and someone made a fantastic, um, so it was a fantastic conversation, which is we talk about equality and that means that you know we get all the people into med school. But equity is understanding the diversity of women, of gender and of intersectionality and actually making sure that everyone has the ability to then continue to the end and deliver and become what they want to be at the end. And there's a fantastic cartoon picture of equity and equality where mm. you've got people watching a baseball game and they've got different steps that they're standing on. And one of my colleagues made a made a, a wonderful statement, which was absolutely fine because you get them to the level that they can see the, the rugby game over the fence because they've now got equity. Doesn't mean they can write about the game in the right way. So it, you know, Chiara Lucy, for me, about women in medicine, women in medicine and women in surgery, all the things that are normal to being a woman, which is having children, you will be taking time in and out. All of that has to be encompassed in a career process that allows you to be successful. And I think that will be more in, that will be interesting to explore further as we go through this.
I was just wondering what what do you think it is that it's impairing retention for women because it can't just be the fact that women are having children because some men also take time out what what is it about the environment in surgery that's making it so challenging I think there's if you think about society and the culture that we've been brought up in uh, women were secretaries women were nurses women didn't hold leadership positions in big FTSE companies they weren't on boards they're still not on boards The change that needs to occur, the cultural change that needs to occur to allow the boys club to disappear, the taps on the shoulders that mean that you get the right jobs to disappear, Mm -hmm. has taken time. But as Vic says, it's no longer tolerated. It cannot be the way forward. So we have to make the environment that people work in respectful, professional. Some of the conversations that happen in a theatre coffee room would not be appropriate in any other business. But it's old fashioned 1950s, 1960s, 1970s banter, and it needs to stop. And there are some wonderful campaigns which are hammer it out and operate with respect, cut it out, which call all of us to arms, which is we all need to be responsible to say the environment that we work in, whether you're male or female, has to be respectful to you has to allow you to flourish and actually shouldn't be an environment where you feel that you can't. How can you get to the point where you've got trainees who have committed to medicine, Mm. committed to to two years of foundation, two years of core, and three, four, five years as a registrar, and then then deciding to leave because the environment we create doesn't support them. So for me, that's the part that we have to sort out. And that's about exit interviews for those that decide to leave the profession. What is it that's making them leave? And how do we understand and implement the change that comes from it? But Vic, what do you think? Yeah, so on the, just on the back of that, Prof Farabati and I are, are actually trying, we're, we're making a campaign to make it compulsory that either the deaneries or the Royal College or JCST or ISCP, all these bodies that look after surgical trainees have to work out where the problem has been and why people are leaving because she and I think that it's more females that are leaving than, than males and we want to know why, where they're going and what can we do to change whatever it is that's making them leave because if it's because they think that they can't do the job with a family for example you know we we can help with that I've got three tiny children under the age of four years old I've got a newborn downstairs I like it is possible and I think we need to we need to just work out what we can do to prove to people or to help people to make it possible and I really want to just deal with a a thing that's completely related to this there's a wonderful TEDx podcast by Professor Michelle Ryan who deals with this thing that people think that women don't get to the top let's say in surgery and she uses surgery as an example and she's not a surgeon and she looked at it across all all of the different um, career pathways Uh, she thinks that women don't get to stop in surgery because that we don't like working the long hours or that we don't like the night shifts or that it's not compatible with a family right and she gives two examples in medicine what two branches of medicine are predominantly female dominated obstetrics and midwifery all all girls right loads loads of girls the worst hours ever 
all night shifts. They've all, loads of them have got families. Loads of them are working horrendous hours that are completely, uh, not, you know, not compatible with anyone's life, if we're all honest. So it's absolutely nothing to do with the fact women don't like working long hours or unpredictable hours, because it's clearly not that. So you've got to look at why is it that that midwives are, re- are willing, willing to work for a lot less money than a surgeon, a lot worse hours, I have to say, probably than a surgeon, as in if you look at how many night shifts they continuously do throughout their career. Why is it that those women are happy to do that, but we get girls into surgery in an ST789, ST345 or wherever it is, they'll, they'll, they'll come out. What is it we're doing in surgery that's, that's, that's not keeping these females? Yes. And, and I've got lots of theories and we actually don't know for sure, but I think one of them, and it's basically what Stella has just said, the lack of role models, the lack of um, females that are there in these high up positions, you need to be the change you want to see. And if you're your first day on rotation as a whatever you are second third fourth year medical student and it's a bunch of white male men that all are bantering in theatre about very inappropriate things Mm. why would that medical student then want to ever take that up as a career and and that's just a a small example or you know and they don't see other women maybe uh you know juggling juggling home and family life also because we've got a really big problem with uh, in our culture in surgery with men feeling it's um a taboo thing to say that you need to leave to go and pick up your kids from school or to say that they want to go less than full time because they want to spend a day at home a week with their children and until we sort that out the onus is always going to fall onto females to to bring up the families until men men are able and feel empowered to say that they think it should be an equal role between men and women bringing up their children or Mm -hmm. that it's okay to say I want to go less than full time to have a better work-life balance because it might not be anything to do with children it might be something else completely different but until we debunk that myth and and deal with that taboo everything is always going to be about females taking the load doing the family stuff going less than full time and things won't change so I'm on a campaign to make boys go less than full time. (laughs) Well well it's interesting so things are changing so Health Education England has now recognised that people will take time out. So there's a fantastic book called A Hundred Year Life. And she describes that if you were born in 1987, there is a 50% chance of you living to 100. If you were born in 1997, which is the age of my oldest one, if you're born in 1997, there is a 50% chance of you living to 106. That's how life is changing in this country. So Health Education England now has absolutely recognised that what will not happen now is that people spend a third of their life in education, a third of their life in work, and a third of their life retired. Mm-hmm. You guys are going to be stepping in and stepping out all the time. You're taking F3 years, gap years, really understanding yourselves and understanding the environments you're working in. And that's going to carry on through our professional lives. So the ability to step in and out of your career, is that going to make you a poorer surgeon in the long term? Absolutely not. In fact, I would say, so I've not gone less than full-time all the way through. I took 12 weeks off for both my children and no female under my remit as a training program director, anyone who goes anywhere near me will ever do that again, unless they really, really want to. The people around me who took, who became less than full-time, I think have turned out better surgeons than me because actually they've taken their time. They've had a measured training 
they've had time to reflect on what they're doing and then come back into it and are really enjoying it. And some people who've gone through it at a very fast pace have not done the same. Mm -hmm. So I've lost colleagues who have decided not to continue in surgery. And I've got colleagues who've done less than full time. And that's for not just just women, career breaks, baby breaks. Mm -hmm. They've set up businesses. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh, medics are such amazing individuals. They don't just do surgery or medicine. They've got this world of art and sports and I've had Olympic champions, you know, working with me and thinking, oh my God. And well, Vic, you do Ironman. <laughs> no, I'm a bit, I was a bit sporty, but right now <laughs> I've just had a baby. So I'm not, I'm not quite sporty right this very second. <laughs> but yeah, we're very capable human beings, aren't we? And I think if someone has made their career work for them rather than been on the treadmill uh, of the NHS and of the deaneries that say you have to do stuff in the way that they want you to do it because it's in t- to their benefit. I don't think that necessarily always makes a happy surgeon at the end of it. And if and I, you've told me this, Stella, you make your career work for you, you know, and your your life, um, your career has to fit around your life. You said the other day, and I thought that was a really mm. wonderful, wonderful. Um, mm parting point because actually and I have done that went and worked in Australia for my F2 and stayed longer after that with everyone saying oh you'll never get back in yes you will and when you go for the interviews they're absolutely delighted to hear that you've done trauma surgery in Australia and then you I don't know gone to went to South Africa and did trauma and whatever you know you bring so much more to the table and I think I think people get really scared they feel like oh god if I take a year out if I go and start a business or or whatever it is you do or or children whatever um you know oh I'll never get back in but I I absolutely um disagree with that and I think that that you know if you want to get back in you will and you'll bring more to the table and I think people will actually welcome you I just think that you get these you know rumor scaremongers that 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 don't like it and it's just because it doesn't suit them but um I, I totally disagree with that. And I think, yeah, you, you need to make your, your life work for you. I worked till the very end of all three pregnancies till nine months. And I thought no one in, in 30 years time is going to go, thanks so much, Vic, for doing that 14 hour shift when you were nine months pregnant, feeling like, you know, no one, no one's going to care. And you know, and you know what, it, it was absolutely killing me. And I, was, and I look back and I think, why did you do that? And I know why I did it, because as a female surgeon, you always feel like you're on the back foot not so much nowadays, but you, you do feel like, oh, I don't want to let the team down because I've got myself pregnant. So you kind of try to be this kind of superhero person. And I wish I didn't feel like that. And I wish I didn't do sort of maybe some of the things I've, I've done. But it's easy to say that once you're a little bit further up in your registrar mm-hmm. training years, and I'm not poo-pooing it for people earlier on in their training years. It's just a shame that it feels like it has to be like that but it is changing and I don't think that actually is the case so much anymore um, and I'm glad. Yeah it really makes me happy to hear you talk about that because Lizzie or now I talk about it enough that I'm absolutely terrified of like when I graduate I will just be a victim of the system because it, I don't know it just seems like there's a lot of um, negative press around like people don't talk about the fact they go on holiday they don't talk about the good stuff they just talk about what their bad shifts or their bad rotors etc and um already it feels like the degree controls my life and what I have to do for the course will come above everything else so heaven knows what it's going to be like when I'm actually being paid to work rather than paying to work and still even though I am the one paying I'm still feeling like this degree is controlling and dictating what I'm doing
day you start your F1 and you get money in your bank account for doing your job. So it's not just the money. I, it was the best day of my life, honestly, apart from the fact I was paying back loads of student loans. I, I could not believe that someone was going to pay me to do something I loved so much. And I genuinely mean that, even though F1 was obviously really hard. I'm not, you know, the, it is difficult, but I could not believe that someone was going to pay me to do something I wanted to do. And I genuinely feel that way now. When I go and do an all-day operating list, you know, and I have a lovely list, it's a lovely day. I actually feel a bit bad because I think I've earned a really good day's wage mm. for doing something I would genuinely do for free like I love operating it's the most amazing thing or if you do a clinic and, a pa- and you pick up a cancer and the patient comes back and says thanks so much I you've picked up my cancer I'm now not dead um you do that stuff for free you sound like you're scared but don't be it's, it's the best day ever to know that you are being paid to do something that you love to do mm. and I think with with covid it's become even more apparent So we're privileged that we still go to work every day. We still have societal norms around us. So we we talk to people, we go and have lunch with people. There are people who have been at home isolating since last March. There are people who've lost their jobs. We are in such privileged positions within the NHS. One One of the questions we've discussed is how do you get into medicine and what makes you successful as you go through? And I think my thoughts on that are that you've got to be organized. And I think if you're organized, so, so, so my, my trainees, my trainees get bigged when they come to see me. So I'm a training program director for core and for hire. And I was a foundation program director for 10 years and it's called being bigged. So being bigged means that you come and sit with me and I say, what do you want written on your deathbed? All right, so I make you think right at the beginning. What is it you want to be remembered for? What are your life values that make you tick? And then I do go through what's needed to get you to the next point in your career. But I also ask you, what's your aspiration? Do you want to be the manager or the teacher or the researcher or the charitable work? What is it? Sustain a bit. What is it that you want to do and be remembered for? And how do we help you with that as well? But what I also do is say, so for... um, surgical trainees we have something called an ISCP which is the um, it's a portfolio into which we upload all the evidence and it's how we assess that trainees are progressing and I always say to trainees I don't want you to do any of that at the weekend what I want is you make a decision on a Wednesday for two hours instead of chatting and whatever before you go home you take two hours and you feed the portfolio and the rest of the time is your time so your work-life balance has to be organized and if I'm really really honest women are much better at that than men so you're already ahead of the game in that <laughs> yeah but there's like there is time you need you just make time like in between theater cases you can do your art your portfolio your ISCP or you can reply to the emails and stuff so it doesn't always have like you say have to be done it in, in the evenings and the weekends I'm not going to say that I don't do stuff in evenings and weekends but I, I fully appreciate what you're saying with with good organization a lot of stuff can be done probably better than we that some people do I agree yeah Lucy and I we always get we do quite a lot of stuff and sometimes people are like oh my god you did too much or how do you fit it all in but honestly I've I really started to enjoy the degree from third year when I started adding in lots of other things on the side because I realized there's more to life than just getting up going to lectures coming home and I'm doing things that feed my soul and honestly if I didn't have these things on the side I think I would not have enjoyed the degree as much as I am at the moment and yes I have less time for it but the time I have 
I'm in the right mindset and I approach it and, and the skills I'm picking up on the side through doing all these other things that yes they won't count towards my exams but I've grown I've developed confidence speaking to people approaching people and that all translates into the degree but it's not stuff I get taught so when people tell first years just concentrate on the degree get in get out I, I completely disagree with that I think do stuff that feeds your soul you won't burn out you'll learn new skills along the way and it'll help keep you sane Life would be so much easier if we all did that, but I would be far less fulfilled. I mean, we, Stella and I could definitely make our life. We could just be not be on council, couldn't we? Because just being on the Royal College Council creates a lot of work. Well, well worth it work, but it makes life more fulfilling in the end. Feed your soul because it keeps you whole. Oh, you're so good at this. You're so good no, at this. No, but, but, it, but you know, but it's absolutely the essence. Yeah. Because we take unbelievably fantastic children and then we put them through school and 16 17 18 year olds come out slightly jaded we then put you into medical school where you're so excited and absolutely amazing and then I don't know what we do to you in you know final year and then first year foundation and I just feel that we squeeze that soul out of you and I think it is the extra stuff that keeps you going because the emotional insult that we get as doctors is immense And most of us are empaths. Most of us are altruists. So we take it and we support each other. And what we get in return is the lovely patients that give you a hug. I I always remember I had an amazing woman who sadly, sadly, she passed because she was getting older. So this has been when I was a young consultant. And she gave me a big hug one day and she said, you know what VIG stands for? And I said, no. And she said, you're my very important girl. And you know, it just makes you smile. And, and it's still now when I have a bad day, they're the memories that come through, which is why, Vic, you know, when you said earlier, being paid to do the job I love to do, I'm like you. Of course, I know what's in my bank account because I've got things I need to pay for. <laughs> but, but, it's, but it is a privilege to be paid. Yeah. And, I, and I think my, my saddest thing now is to see the job that really is a profession starting to be looked at as a job yeah and it will never be a job and one of the hardest things for for you guys I think coming through is I'm still rather old-fashioned and I stay around and I do silly things in the evenings because because my kids are older and I can but one of the saddest things I see now is I know that trainees want to stay and look after their patients and sort out that last problem before they go home. But actually they feel compelled because of the European Working Time Directive. And that dissonance, which is between, I know what's in my heart, I know what's in my heart and what I really want to do. And then of course there's that piece, which is what I must do. Mm. And I think women feel that potentially more than men, just because of the way that we're, we're, we're built there is something about women but men absolutely feel it too i think this is a great point to move on to some myth and fact a quick fire um myth busting so so what we've done is collated the common themes that were coming through these are school-aged children thinking of applying so from years 10 to years 13 and beyond and it was very interesting actually to see the sort of things that were coming up so let's get cracking the first one was Men are more physically able as they have better stamina and physical strength for long days operating compared to women. Nickel fact. Well, I'm going to let Vic do that, Miss Iron Woman. I mean, what a load of, I don't know what swear word I'm allowed to use, but I can't, I can't even tell you how disappointed and angry that makes me. First of all, stamina-wise, absolutely not, because you tell me what, what man can breastfeed all night get up and do a 14 hour on call shift the next day 
come home, help do whatever it is in the house that needs doing, go to sleep for their two hours till the next wake up, two hours, and then go back and do it all again. Secondly, if you want a fact rather than something anecdotal like that, women are known to be endurance wise from a sporting point of view of being better than men. So, okay, I know that a girl can't necessarily always lift the same amount of free weights as a man, right? So I'm not disputing that. But endurance sports are completely different. So the Britain's toughest running race was won in 2019 by Miss Paris, who was a vet who was breastfeeding her child and beat every man over however many days it took, I can't remember, because she was just better at endurance running. So there is absolutely no truth from the endurance point of view, from a physically or, or emotionally. In fact, on the contrary, I think females are better and that is why we are able to be surgeons that can also physically feed children and still go to work. So you are having a physical impairment done to you by breastfeeding and not sleeping and still be surgeons. And also if you're having to use strength in your theatre as a surgeon, physical strength, then you're not doing the surgery right, to be quite honest. And you ask any female orthopaedic surgeon, what lots of boys sort of tend to talk about. Uh, Scarlett McNally is, I can't remember how tall she is, she's something like five foot one, probably a size six. And she is a consultant orthopaedic surgeon. And she, you know, you do not need to be, you know, a weightlifter to be a surgeon. So I totally want to debunk that myth. And, and I think what's also important is to remember that in the old days, you know, when surgeons were gods and did things on their own. Yes. Do you know what? There might have been an element of that. Now we all work in teams. And so the, the strength of the team is that we're all so different. And there'd be someone who is really, really strong and is an iron woman. And there might be someone who's not. It doesn't matter because you now work as teams, the, the extended surgical team is so so important to make any surgeon be able to do their job and I think in COVID we're seeing that so our anaesthetists and scrub nurses and ODPs have gone to ITU and surgeons have been left stranded because we can't operate without them. Yeah I think one of the other reasons people say oh, men are better suited to surgery because women are too emotional they let emotion get in the way of their work what would you say to someone that says something like that? So, so Lucy it's, it's interesting that you will find that when you become foundation doctors, mm. you will break bad news to, to families and you will feel like you want to cry with them. And I have cried with some of my patients because uh, vascular surgery in particular, you know, you get to know absolute fam families and generations because diabetes, you know, is generational. Peripheral vascular disease is generational. And what happens as time goes on, and it doesn't matter whether you're a man or a woman, you've learned to control what is your professional behavior from your personal emotion? And you can have a really bad day at home. It doesn't matter whether you're male or female, but you don't bring it into work. It compartmentalizes into two different spheres. Mm. It's similar for men and women. I've had men who you know, need debriefing after awful things that have happened because people die. And sometimes we touch people during their dying phase and there's nothing we can do to change it. But of course, we're surgeons and we want to make sure, you know, we want to operate and someone comes, becomes better. That's why we wanted to do surgery. And sometimes you just can't do that. There's this big thing about like, so if a female is assertive, they're called bossy. 
And if a male is assertive, then they're just the man, you know, they're really like they're confident and they're, you know, uh, and I think that so when a female might show some compassion or some emotion, then it's labeled as a bad thing. I, I totally disagree with that. And, and I think it might be that if a male has had a bad day, they might become aggressive. Why is it okay if you're a male and you might become a bit aggressive because you've that's the way of manifesting your emotions. And I think people will just learn to deal with their emotions uh, as an individual in a professional way. And, and, and stereotyping doesn't help anyone. Again, in the coming generations where it's okay for a male to cry, where it's okay for a female to be assertive and not call bossy, I think all of this is going to change and the future is bright and there won't be this big black and whiteness between male and females and the way they deliver their care and females are emotional and men are aggressive. Yeah. I, think, I think it will, it will all even out over the years. And I think to anyone who's listening to the podcast who's considering going into surgery and actually is thinking, or medicine, and thinking, I don't know how I would fare... It's really interesting. Something called the Myers-Briggs questionnaire gives you an understanding. It's not absolute science, but it gives you a really good understanding of the underlying traits that you might hold and also how you might react to stress. And it would be quite useful for people to do that if they haven't considered doing that. Yeah, so I think it's a really good point. And I really want to talk about what the Royal College of Surgeons is doing to target these problems so that we can make a better environment for women in the future, so that we can get more women into surgeries, that we can get more women in those leadership positions. What are we doing right now to improve things for the future? This wonderful piece, uh, this independent review is going on, and I was um, very kindly invited to be on the panel um, because I was one of the people that called for it to happen. And um, so we got to interview lots of people over many, many months um, and really get a handle on what's going on in surgery as a whole, which is there is still sadly um, some racism, some sexism, some, some, some lack of diversity and it does need to change. But the fact that the review has been called at all means that there is change coming. And the Royal College of Surgeons of England have commissioned and paid for this review because they're taking it seriously so um, and I'm not someone to advocate for an institution if I don't think it's worth it but I promise you that they really do want to change things now they need to look at their self first and their in-house issues and which they are um, but they also during this review we they um, looked at what can be done in surgery at uh, not just in within the Royal College of Surgeons, but also surgery as a whole. And the report will be published shortly. And we've made lots of recommendations. And it's going to. And, and Neil Mortison has said, um, the president has said that he will take this seriously and will implement what what we say uh, as much as possible because he wants to change things. So I. I do feel that the Royal College of Surgeons of England are massively behind um, women in surgery, uh, diversity in surgery as a whole, and I do think change is coming. And there are many, many things that we're doing from a women in surgery point of view. I'm sure Stella, Stella and I both sit on the committee for women in surgery and, and, it, and Professor Farabati is the chair, and there is a lot going on. So we're coming towards the end of the episode now. And there was a really great question submitted um, and it was, so if females occupy 77% of the NHS workforce, why are so many people pushing for more opportunities for females in the workplace? Why, why are we interested in getting more women to the top? So it's interesting, the 77% is the entirety of the NHS workforce. And so nursing, which of course is one of the biggest 
um, employers and disciplines within the NHS has been a space that's been occupied by women because it's, it's thought to be the, the, the nursing role. And of course, in nursing, the challenge is how do we entice men to come in and do that role? So they've almost got the opposite conversation. They've got huge vacancy rates because it's a really tough job and it's normally women that do that role. So they're trying to get men into those roles as well. When we look at women going into medicine at medical school, it's still 50-50. But as you go through the hierarchy of the medical profession, not just surgery, the numbers of women coming to the very end of their time within the profession falls off. And that's why the conversation is still live as to how do we ensure that we've got a healthy workforce that's not burnt out, that is used for the entirety of its talent which is why we need to ensure that that gender equity continues to the very end uh, as to when people retire. But in a, in, a, in a simple answer to why do you want more women in the workforce, it's not more women, it's more women in, in each subspecialty in an equal number because the world is an equal number. So there's 50-50 women and men in the world. So why shouldn't everything that is possible to be be 50-50? There's no reason that surgery should be 13% female surgeons, consultant mm. surgeons at the top. There is just absolutely no reason, except for it's a historical thing left over from the fact that everything is designed around it being for men. And mm. this just needs to stop. And, and there's no place for this anymore. Mm. And uh, the world is a better place when you have more diversity. And I don't just mean men and women. I actually mean men, women, and everything else, including yeah. all other genders and identifiers and the colour of your skin. The world yeah. is a better place when we have more diversity. You're a better doctor. When you're taking a history from someone and you're maybe from a background that's not the same as theirs, it's possible you're not getting the best history from a patient. It's possible that you're not mm -hmm. identifying them with them as easily as you would do if you were more similar to them. And I don't just mean, okay, language is an easy thing to talk about, but as in, as in just culturally, the, um, your accent, the way you are. And if you're used to talking to people from whatever background, you don't even notice that they're from different backgrounds. But if, you're, if you've grown up in your little world and your little bubble where you're used to only talking to those types of people in your echo chamber, you're not gonna get the best history from that patient. You're not gonna identify the fact that they actually, they haven't pooed for, 10 days and they've got bowel obstruction they're about to die or that they've got diabetes or lactic acid whatever it is and I think that that, that the more diverse you are and open-minded you are and the more diverse our workforce the better it is for patients. You mentioned about diversity and I was reading a paper about it and they were saying you know one of the big reasons why we need to get more people from all different parts of the UK even if there's no one that's gone to study medicine from your school um, you know if you're listening and you think oh I don't know anyone that's done medicine people they actually found that care is better for patients because doctors generally tend to go back and work in the kind of communities or the type of communities where they trained so obviously if if there's socioeconomic disparities and health inequalities the best way to solve it is to get doctors who know that like the back of their hand trade and then are more likely to go back and work in it not by any kind of being forced to go back in but that just seems to be what happens well, well, that was that was the International Women's uh, Day, wasn't it? A couple of years ago was Lift to Climb. And this year's Choose to Challenge. And I do choose to challenge that theory that you forget your roots as you go back, as you go up. Well, I think you've given us some excellent food for thought there. And I was just wondering, 
we've thought, talked a lot about where surgery is at the moment, but what are you hoping to see in the next 10 years? What do you think that it's going to be like when they get there in, well, not quite 10 years time, it'll be about 20 years by the time they actually become surgeons. But What do you think it's going to be like for them? Well, my father died four years ago at 92, and he used to talk about his school days, which were chalkboards and um, candles. And when he died, he was using the internet. When I qualified in 1991, there was no MRI scanner. And CTs were things that you got through your boss. You weren't allowed to order them on your own. So if you look at the change that's happened over time, it's incredible. And that change, whether it's COVID or whatever the next driver is, that change is coming through quicker and quicker. So I think as time goes on, as people have realised through COVID that the NHS can't manage the patients that are there, the backlogs that are there now are going to take years to clear. There is a new deal for surgery and it's needed, but actually we also need to invest in a new deal for patients. So people need to become healthier. The public health conversation is there. And I think what what I really want to see is a reduction in the need for operative treatments. But I think also what will go along that, if you look at things like robotics, which I think are absolutely incredible. You know, you watch Star Trek and you see things on Star Trek and you think, I wonder whether there will be extracorporeal treatment in five, 10 years time. If anybody on the podcast is listening, have a look at something called the Commission on the Future of Surgery, which gives you a tiny insight into what may be coming. But I think there is a potential that surgery will not exist in the way it does now. We do barbaric things to our patients. Uh, I have patients who come in who've had vascular surgery years ago uh, and they've got the most huge scars on their legs. People, Vic, who've had, you know, mastectomies in the past that were just radical mastectomies and absolutely disfiguring. And now we do stereotactic biopsies of of breast cancers and and now there's medical treatment. Mm. I think there will be a shift. So I think people who are coming to surgery now need to look at the totality of surgery and what else they do. So the genomics and the robotics and the AI, all those kind of things need to be part of the vocabulary of a surgeon going forward. Fantastic. And what would the final takeaway messages be for people that have listened to the podcast? And um, what, what would you like to leave them with? I absolutely want to say that anyone that wants to do a career in surgery or have a career in surgery or follow this amazing, I I would do everything again all over. And I'm not saying this for the podcast. I feel so, like Stella said, privileged to be able to do this. And I, I really can't believe someone pays me to come to work every day and do the job I do. And I'm not saying I don't have bad days. I'm not saying when I don't take on too much stuff, I think, what the hell have I done? Why didn't I just do something else there are times I feel like that but but wow I I genuinely am doing something I love I will go to my deathbed feeling like I've given it my absolute best shot try to make things better for myself or those around me and maybe if I'm lucky some other people in the world and it's the most fulfilling career every day that you go in you do something different you learn something different even if it's not even a technical skill you learn something different from a patient or a nurse or an ODP every single day there's just there's something different something challenging something amazing and yes time management needs to be managed well I obviously got the three small kids but I've got very very luckily an amazing husband partner who works four days a week I work four days a week we only have childcare three days a week because of that so three days a week childcare on those days is it a bit stressful yeah but we manage it we have things in place so that neither of us have to leave the operating theatre or clinics or whatever it is we're doing 
early because we know we've got good childcare in place. It's done. So for those three days that the, that the childcare is needed, we are 100% committed to those jobs. The other days, one of us is always at home, you know, tag teaming each other. I still do masses of cycling, running. We do loads of sports because we tag team. One of us is left with three kids. Yeah, is it a disaster for those few hours that you're left? Yeah, it is. But you know what? Who cares? It doesn't really matter. The, ch- the children are happy. I've managed to do it. I've managed to have fun the whole way. I've travelled. I've done, you know, I've been to South Africa, Australia and Uganda with my medical uh, career or, or during my training and whatever. And I've loved every single second of it. And I cannot um implore people enough to try and do this if it's something you want to do it's totally doable it's totally manageable i've got three tiny children i have enjoyed every second of it you need to time juggle well but you can do it and i'm happy and i would do it again the same way and i promise all the things that i wouldn't do the same way i will try to make different for those coming behind me and things are changing and I I actually think year on year things are going to get better and the people coming through it's going to be easier and better in fact we won't even be having this conversation about women in and diversity in surgery I I hope that none of this will even be necessary and I'm really excited for anyone that wants to pursue a career in surgery because it genuinely is the best career don't think about anything else there is nothing else out there that is as good as this. I think medicine really is a passport to whatever you want it to be. Yeah. You can go anywhere with it. You don't have to go by plane. You don't have to go on a train. You can do whatever you want. Even if one person is going one way, you can go the other. Even if it isn't what's typical or what you're supposed to do, you can do whatever you want with it. And it's just about making sure more people have access to that passport. So that's what I really want to leave with everyone today. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you both so much for joining us today. I really, really enjoyed myself. So thank you very much for inviting us as well. Yeah, thank you for even doing this podcast. I'm delighted you're doing it. And I hope lots of people listen and feel inspired and happy and want to try to um, get into medicine and, and stay in it and, and, and do what they want to do, even if it's not surgery, as long as they just aren't put off by things that are, are, are beyond their control. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you want more, be sure to check out all of our previous episodes, reading from our highly popular open pods, UCAP, BMAT and into your advice and even more. Make sure you're following us on Instagram at how to become a doctor with doctor spelt DR for more. And be sure to subscribe on your podcast platform of choice so you never miss an episode. See you next time. Bye.